Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the left page. We are here today with a, a very special episode. It's it, it's going to be our first one with an actual author and their own work. Uh, we have CM Rosens here to talk about the about her incredible novel, The Crows, and. She also has a bunch of interesting projects and works coming along very, very soon. So we're going to mention more about those as well. But yeah, welcome. Hi, it's really good to be here. <laughs> yeah, so thank you for inviting me on the show. <laughs> I mean, of course, like it's such a, it's one of my favorite novels of 2020. And oh. Considering <laughs> some of the projects you're doing, more than fair to you know have you on talk about the crows and uh, help spread the word on what you're going to do next. Yeah, brilliant. First things first, I'm, I'm we're just gonna um, <laughs> go a brief outline of the crows because unlike our most discussions, this one is not going to be particularly spoilery a couple of things here and there because they're fairly unavoidable but well considering some of the the projects that are, are going to be coming along soon including the sequel to the crows some point this year yep yeah so um arcs are going to come out in march um and hopefully the sequel will be out in april so that's with the editor at the moment so it depends on you know <laughs> <laughs> how how the formatting and everything goes that's the projected timeline for that so around about easter time i should say start seeing uh, uh, yeah very so very excited yeah uh so you'll be able to pre-order that hopefully from march going forwards when the advanced reader copies go out so yeah <laughs> Really looking forward to it. That will be 13th. <laughs> yeah, 13th, yeah. So that's going to be kind of uh, I know, a very English middle class version of House of a Thousand Corpses. With <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's kind of how most of my writing seems to be. Yeah. So uh, yeah, with a bit of uh, a bit of Lovecraft's Dagon and Hannibal Rising thrown in there. But yeah, make it British. <laughs> Excited. <laughs> and, and and because uh, podcasting world is great, uh, you'll also be launching a podcast on February, Eldritch Girl. I will. Eldritch Girl is uh, my new podcast. I'm going to be doing uh, one author interview a month on there. Um, but the main thrust of it is a weekly serial of The Crows, which is the novel we're going to talk about today. Um, so that's going to be chapter by chapter. Um, some of the chapters have been split up for length. Um, so each episode is going to be 30 minutes long thereabouts. And that's going to start from the 4th of February. So it's going to run up until July, season one. And then season two will be the serialization of 13th. And that will start then sort of the end of this year. So, yeah, so that's the idea. So I've got some people lined up for the author interviews and for the bonus episodes as well, which will be world building, extra short stories and a bit of fun, basically. So with some surprises. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> And that will be coming out next week from when this episode comes out. So 
you can definitely yeah. look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we're we're not going to go into too much spoiler territory because you know we want you to listen to the crows because uh, it's it's so good, it's so good. So what is the actual novel about? Like I I made the the, the very simplest of notes. Okay, so it's about uh, a woman called Carrie who is kind of escaping a toxic relationship, which is very emotionally, psychologically abusive. She falls in love with a ruined house, which is known locally as the Crows, formerly known as Fairwood House. She buys it at auction, she does it up, and she becomes completely obsessed with it. And as she digs into the secrets of the house, the house whispers to her, and reveals more about the twisted past, including a historic child murder, which is one of the main plot points. So she is then kind of faced with the secrets of the house's past, but also her own past interwoven in this narrative. And her neighbour, who offers to help her, is a very <laughs> is a very special lad. Uh, <laughs> He's a very, uh, yeah, he's basically a cannibalistic, eldritch soothsayer, and he knows that she only has 33 days to live. So the question is, is his offer of help sincere or is, is he the reason she's doomed? So that's that's kind of the, that's the story. There's a lot going on there. There's so much going on. And <laughs> I have to say, the Crows Fairwood is the the best house, the greatest house of all time. It, it simply <laughs> is. I, I just you know, but the best place, the best place. You need to take care of it, of course. But given that, like, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I I wanted to get away from the idea of the sentient house being the evil antagonist because I thought that's not fair. Because all houses have their own personalities, you know. <laughs> Like, just because something's technically alive doesn't automatically mean it's going to be evil. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I feel like sentient houses tend to be the orcs of, um, (laughs) like, this kind of genre. Where, like, they're... (laughs) they're, um, You very rarely get, like, a good one or, like, one that's... um, One of the ones that I found that was, like, a really nice sentient house was in the Unspeakable Anthology. Oh, collection yeah. Was a, yeah and I was like yes <laughs> but yeah so this is a house with a, a personality of its own and an agency and that kind of it doesn't necessarily want to kill everybody it just wants to kill specific people <laughs> exactly it has yeah. its reasons yeah it has its reasons <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's it's very attached to um specific people as well and very protective of certain people and so I wanted to create this sort of a, a, a three-dimensional personality for, for the house. <laughs> Which is a beautiful sentence, and, and you absolutely do. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I mean, I quite like Crypt. And then you've got the, the coal cellar next to it, which is where some horrible stuff happened. And so that's a very angry, very almost irrationally angry, vengeful place. And they, they can cancel each other out. And you have other parts of the house that have different elements of personality and then they kind of coalesce into a whole. So, yeah, so as you're kind of wandering around the house, you get a sense that different areas of the house are more welcoming than others and more conducive to guests than others are. 
so the kitchen in particular is where most of the action takes place because that's where the, the so it's it's sort of the heart of the house and um it's also very much uh, a, a working class space i would argue because it's where it's not an an, an elite space it's where a lot of the servants would have been and you've got that kind of life of the house um, and everything taking place within the kitchen space so um, because it was a manor house it's um it's a place that's kind of more acceptable i guess or more accepting of carrie who's the new owner who is herself like working class middle class background so she feels more comfortable in the kitchen and a lot of people like do feel more comfortable in the kitchen because it's it's more of a a welcoming space than other rooms in the house that actually Carrie doesn't live in or you know like the master bedroom she actually is in one of the guest bedrooms because it's smaller and more comfortable and you get the sense that the master bedroom doesn't actually want to have somebody from a particular class living in it um so that's quite it's so you've got that kind of element going on within the house itself and working with the house and kind of uh very kind of subconscious as the house kind of subconsciously makes carry more at home in certain areas which is a very kind of I like playing with that as as a class element to it as well definitely how the house both has like its various personalities inside of it and how they they exist and react in different ways. So we do have like the coal cellar at times. It's more of like that ancestral rage and anger. And at times like the kitchen is this more welcoming, more the place where a lot of the action and conversations happen, where a lot of characters come in. So it, it really, it plays to, uh, to these various class elements and, and even like how how it works for the plot and how <laughs> how the haunted house is various things yeah and i mean i mean um so i come from a mining area anyway so i thought the coal cellar being the the angry kind of you know ancestral rage kind of thing is also because of the you know various mining disasters and horrendous things that happened in the mines and that kind of thing that made sense to have that coal cellar space as picking up on all of that as well like all of that is literally you know embedded in the walls with like the coal dust and the you know so so that that kind of all plays in together yeah (laughs) (laughs) and well well it is the story of of fairwood it is also and that's uh, one of the things that we, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about because it is so good and so fun. But it is the story of Bagamon Sea, the incredible, yes. terrifying town. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. So Pagamon Sea is a fictional town. It doesn't really exist. There is a real place called Pagam, uh, which is in West Sussex. Pagamon Sea is meant to be in East Sussex, and I dropped it on top of where Norman's Bay is in real life, basically. It's about there. So if you go there, there's nothing there. It's um, a few houses and some fields, and there's some farms, and but there's this wide open space, and that's kind of where I imagined the town to fit. And then I skewed the geography in my descriptions, and I moved the cliffs. Though, so there are no cliffs in real life there. 
but I say there are in the book. So you get this impression that it's, it kind of muddled, so, so, so it's kind of muddies the water, I guess, as to where it is, but it's somewhere along the Sussex coast. And I hope it's kind of vaguely recognisable. I, I kind of wanted to create a town that you would probably know if you'd been to any British seaside town and it would be recognisable to you in some way. And I wanted to make it real, but also make it a space where I can explore different supernatural elements and different communities of supernatural creatures or paranormal goings on or um, all that kind of stuff. And it's the kind of town where there's an undercurrent of things happening all the time. Um, and I wanted to make that a setting so that in any given novel, you could pick it up and you could get a sense that there are lots of different stories that haven't been told. And then maybe I will tell those stories later in unrelated novels, but they all link up by the setting and like the that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's the that was the concept of Pagamon Sea. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the ways you've also described like thirteenth is that it's not a direct sequel to the events in the Crows, but connected to Pagamon Sea and a couple of the characters where their stories are advancing. Yeah. So it in in many ways it it kind of is a direct sequel in that you've got a continuation of of one of the arcs that's sort of the main arc. Um, but you could read The Crows as a prequel to that, I hope. Um, so the idea is if you read 13th, yes, The Crows is kind of spoiled for you, but you could read it as a prequel of how on earth did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> um, and a lot of people who've read 13th without having read The Crows, all of them said they wanted to read The Crows as a prequel to figure out what was going on um, um, and how how we got to this point so that was that was very good for me to, to kind of when I was in the beta stage to know when I've kind of tweaked it a bit so that I think you can just pick up 13th and read it but you get more out of it if you if you know what was going on before so it's set eight months after the crows wow. finishes the prologue starts on the 14th of May so that overlaps with one date in the crows epilogue so the epilogue is the 14th of may and the 16th of may and something happens very significantly on the 14th of may and you see that same event at the start of 13th from the perspective of another character and that kicks off 13th and then we jump eight months in ahead to see how that plays out but from the perspective of someone completely different and that's katie who has like two lines of dialogue in The Crows and you meet incredibly briefly in chapter four as a throwaway character who literally doesn't need to be the, well, she, um, yeah, she, she's, uh, she just sort of pops up because Carrie is having tea with her gram. And so Katie is one of the main characters in 13th and her brother Wes, who pops up in The Crows very briefly to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of um, context for a particular family he is a main character in 13th. And then their cousin, Ricky Porter, who is the, the anti-villain of the Crows, I suppose. He is another main character. But you see him through the eyes of his cousins. 
So Wes and Katie are his cousins. And you get to see a completely different side of the whole family because you're seeing it from an internal perspective and not from Carrie's outsider perspective. So, um, yeah, so you get to see a lot of different things. So hopefully you can read it as a standalone and then read The Crows as a, <laughs> as a you know, as a prequel. Yeah, I... One of the things that is really interesting about, and, and you've spoken about this before in one of the Romancing the Gothics workshops, is the world building because it does feel <laughs> like I, I've been reading a lot of recently gothic novels because of the group, and it's yeah, just how the amount of sometimes it isn't even the detail but the the focus the the careful construction of like i don't i won't remember the specific details but like specific quarters or areas of pagamon sea which are like oh this is that place this is that place and like you get a name and a strange idea but you don't know exactly what it is and you as a, a writer you effectively you go after and you do plan at least a little a few ideas you have there's also a, a short a couple of stories that are um, like pagamon sea folklore yeah separate as a standalone couple of stories short thing very very fun very very creepy too the close <laughs> is very scary and incredible and fun <laughs> but it's just how because like i as you know, and everyone knows at this point, I'm not British <laughs> and I have never been. On the other hand, it does feel kind of close in a way. Like these are like, not really what I'd expect, but there is a sense of existence to what I'm reading and to how this place feels. There's a connection between its various ideas and places, which does feel more than like, oh, this is just a fictional setting or this is just the place it is like no that there are mysteries there are intrigue there are stories involved even if we're never going to be told of them and that is that's one of the things i love really about reading like the stories i know there are stories i am told a bit about and there are stories i'll never really know and they may not even exist but it's just this teasing and this building of relations that i just it's so interesting to me yeah so i i kind of um i think when you're building a town or any kind of place, you have to have a really good working knowledge of what a town like that looks like. So my my whole thing was I have to have a solid, maybe not, I don't have a solid, I have kind of a solid map in my head of Pagamon Sea. And what I'd really like is to commission somebody to, to draw it for me, because um, I'm not very good at town planning. I think the important thing is you need to have a model. And so otherwise people won't buy it. Right. You have to have because somebody will will live in a town like that or somebody will have have visited a town like that. And if you've just kind of made it up from nothing in your head with no with no reference point, they'll know what's wrong. Right. So and I was kind of going along the urban paranormal lines at the time where um, or urban fantasy, where the, the, the setting is itself a character. And I really like that. And I, I really wanted to give this place its own feel and its own. Um, the, well, the way to do that, is, uh, because I'm storing by trade anyway, which is something we have in common, Frank, I think. Um, 
is that I I started with the history of the town. So why is it there in the first place? So a town has to have a reason to exist. You can't just drop a town in the middle of, you know, an area um, and go, there we go. It's a town now, because that's not how towns work. There has to be a reason for people to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't exist at all. So it would be a, it could be a village, but it wouldn't be a city. It could be a what makes it a what makes it a town and not a city? What makes it a town and not a village? What makes it, you know, so you need the geography for that. So you need to know what's there and what's not in terms of the land. Was it built around farms? Yes, because that's you've got some farms in that area anyway. Um, it's probably also going to be a fishing port because it's a coastal town and that's what East Sussex is kind of known for. So it's probably going to be some sort of Anglo-Saxon, Old English kind of settlement that expanded. And I can borrow from actual history here. So I looked at things like the history of Sussex and where the Romans landed. I looked at uh, Roman ironworks in the area and decided that a meteorite had hit one of them. And that's why there isn't an ironworks on a map you know so so, yeah and then I sort of played with that and that's in the folklore of Pagamon Sea and that is the origin story for some interesting supernatural goings on and some folklore around the shards of the meteorite and things like that that you can find in this and I blended that with some actual folklore so I thought that'd be quite fun and I kind of so I set up the town I kind of decided then I tried to get some historical facts in inverted commas for each century Mm -hmm. or each major you know what were they doing during the witch trials what were they doing during the civil war um what was going on uh, at this point in history what was pagamon sea like at that time you know and sort of giving reasons for the town to have expanded so that's why it's got a lot of victorian buildings because I figured at that point in history people are coming to the coast for holidays in the Georgian and Victorian times and you've got the industrial revolution so that means you've got you probably got some maybe factories or something you've got the docks would have been a bit of a bigger thing wouldn't it be weird if uh, it turned out that one of the philanthropists who owned a factory turned out to be a werewolf and built a load of (laughs) houses for his workers and then bit a load of them and like, so that's now you've got a like, so now you've got a lycanthropic, a lycanthropic community in Pagamon Sea, a historic lycanthropic community in Pagamon Sea, who have remained there and people who kind of move to the area who are also werewolves, move to this particular area and get ingrafted into packs. So now you have a werewolf district, right? <laughs> and, um, and then obviously you expand that out and you go well there must be other places in like that too so then I have to figure out the whole kind of thing about werewolves and and what do you do when you're a werewolf and you move you know you move for your job and like you know you know is 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 do you have to what what do people do in London when they're just constantly like moving around jobs and moving moving in and out of the city like are there just random packs that form and then unform? And is it a very kind of fluid existence? How does that work? What would that look like? So all of this comes into play. And then you've got, so I then had to figure out, well, 
okay, so why would you move there? And I made it into a commuter town and put a train line in to London because that would make it more likely for supernatural people to go, oh, there's there's lots of different things going on in this town and I can move out of London and have a cheaper rent, which is what everyone wants. So the town just kind of grew from these what if questions and scenarios and the why questions. Why is this here? Why is this like that? And I modelled it on nearby towns and things like that. So that's where it all came from. Um, so there's the werewolf district. There's a there's a vampire thing because I thought, well, you have to really you have to have vampires. Of course. Like, of course. <laughs> you can't just have. Yeah. So they live in Catrafas, which is so Carfax in Dracula is the bastardization of Catrafas, meaning four sides. There's a Carfax tower in Oxford as well, which also mm. means a four-sided, it's a four-sided tower. It's a square tower, not a round tower. So there's a square in Pagamon Sea called Catrafas, which is Carfax, right? Which is a thing. And it basically looks like Barclay Square in London. And I just dumped that in the middle of the seaside town and said, well, this is where all the Georgians, the rich Georgians used to go on holiday. And this is your seaside apartment, you know, and now they're just empty shells of these Georgian townhouses that are filled with vampire nests. And it looks really pretty on the outside. And then, you know, but if you go in, they're basically, the whole place is gutted and you've got like, you know, vampires hanging off things and (laughs) like different kinds of vampires and different, because yeah, you've got a lot of, you could have like, different kinds of vampires migrating in and like lots of different kinds of undead that are vampires or vampire adjacent living in different living in different townhouses and it's all eerily silent and quiet and you walk through and there's just no sound at all in the daytime and nobody walks through there and nobody knows why they don't walk through there they just don't want to and so then of course you've got well what do they do what do they do well Obviously, vampire nightclubs. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a lot of vampire nightclubs. You've got some 24-hour cafes. And they sell tickets on the dark web, I guess. And they sell packages to people who are vampire groupies. Because we've had the twilight phenomenon, right? And they're yeah. very perennially popular. Vampire, everyone loves a vampire. And there will be people who have got a fetish about this. And so the vampires are like, well, we don't need to hunt. We can all do it kind of above board. And we can sell the well, sort of. And we can sell these tickets. And people will come and they'll pay extra to have us feed on them. So they will pay us to feed on. So it's win, 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 right? So they figured this out and they've got a whole franchise going and like yeah some of it's all very well done and others of it is really not and very not very well regulated and that kind of thing so there's a lot of tension within the communities Paula Parsons who's the human DI detective inspector for Pagamonsi is dating Maria Tzadilas who is a Greek vampire Lamia who owns Mm -hmm. a a very good and very well-run vampire club Mm -hmm. so And that's that's a throwaway in the crows. I think I mentioned that vaguely, but yes, yeah, so you have like the very well done and sort of respectable, respectable establishments, and then you have the not so respectable ones where 
you know they don't check id and like they have they encourage underage demographics because some vampires be like that and it's yeah it's all very like oh yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's so that i had lots of fun kind of coming up with all of this and i'm going to play with this in the podcast as well you'll have some undead podcast episodes as bonuses I'm hoping to like chat to people from Pagamon Sea kind of in character and um yeah so there'll be a lot of and I will be in my sort of CM Rosen's the member of the Pagamon Sea History Society persona as well so yeah so it's going to be a lot of fun that so I'll get to talk more about that on my on my podcast later in the year yeah but that's that's kind of the that's the town yeah lots of other stuff going on too yeah, and I think that's what I find so interesting is that like you do go and build these various relationships through history, through like, oh, why is this town here? Like, how was its history and related to these events, and how did it expand or contract, and and the people involved, and then and then you start working with the characters. So it, it, yeah. in that sense, it kind of well, it it becomes a real town, fictional, but a real town with an actual history, yeah. with the actual stories with its various districts and places it's and then you start building and accumulating that folklore with it which i find really interesting because (laughs) it is something that i've also gone into a little contact and how how does that incorporation of certain traditions and like building upon it and changing and adapting it and the crows and the folklore of pegamon sea and i'm sure 13th as well do will do that as well in an incredible way because it's it's weird it's strange it's horrific it's fun (laughs) it's a lot of fun i so i read a lot of sussex folklore and there's a book by jacqueline simpson i really recommend i've got a few bits and pieces like this sussex guide came out which i have here which is by viv crute um, so that's Salacious Sussex, which is a really mm. small volume, but it's that's got a lot of really fun, true kind of stories about the history of Sussex. And it's all the the really kind of smutty or spicy stuff. Um, and that's that was quite fun to kind of have a look through and go, oh, I wonder if I could just tweak this a little bit. And then you've got that kind of real flavour to it. And I like to um, I like to build on the idea. I love urban legends anyway. And the problem with Pagamon Sea is that most of them are probably true. But I really like the idea of having a town where you have these supernatural communities, and they all have urban legends, their own folklore. And what of what are you know if resurrectionists afraid of? That was so. A resurrectionist is something I made up. So that's not obviously based on stuff, but so a resurrectionist is just somebody who is born with a birthmark and the birthmark is in the shape of a number. But it's like a port wine stain birthmark. And that's how old they will be when they die. And I thought that was such a that kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> I was like, oh, because birthmarks are generally like quite interesting anyway to play with as as signs and you know I think I I, I probably got it from the Exorcist with the six 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 symbol, you know and I was th- yeah. uh, sorry Omen the Omen not the Exorcist uh, yeah so Damon's birthmark and I was like no wouldn't it be funny if you had like if you were born with a birthmark and it was like 
the number of years that you had to live. And what happens if your birthmark is 17? And what happens if it's 92? How do you live your life knowing? But the point is that until they reach that age, they cannot die. So they could be run over by a truck, but they don't, they get back up again because they don't die. And some things they just heal from. And then I was like, well, what if they were just put through a wood chipper? Would they still, would, would that still? And I decided that they wouldn't die, but they wouldn't necessarily heal from it. So you've got sites of horror there within that community and all of the potential for urban legends, like, oh, this happened to a friend of my sister, you know, and, and she got put in a jar. And, and you get like all of these like really scary fairy stories and things that you scare little resurrectionist children with at night. You know, and, and I, I thought that was really fun to kind of create. And I kind of take urban legends that are actual urban legends and tweak them to make them hyper local to Pagamon Sea. Mm-hmm. And because I know the town and because I know the town's area, I can do that. Because then it was like, oh, well, this would make sense if I set instead of it being, you know, oh, this this urban legend, ha- you know, is meant to have happened in the 70s. And it's, you know, well, what if in Pagamon Sea it happened in the 1870s? Mm-hmm. And I I put it in this thing and you know create this element and then you have a a, an urban legend that sounds really plausible but is very specific to the town itself so that's what I like to do that's how I play with things yeah Yeah. and and I keep thinking of the one I I listened to I haven't read the others yet I do I need to I want to but you know time (laughs) but the punch and judy man that's a (gasps) Yeah, the Punch and Judy. So that's Punch and Judy is um, a staple of British seaside towns. I saw lots of Punch and Judy shows growing up. There's always a little theatre on the beach and they're they're quite rare now. You don't really see them as much anymore, mainly because um, so the whole the whole thing about it, it kind of came out of Commedia dell'arte was imported to Britain by a puppeteer, I think, called Signor Bologna, who had I think he started off with marionettes and now they are glove puppets uh, mr punch uh, you should really look it up if you haven't if you're not aware is sort of has the is sort of the long-nosed commedia dell'arte mask type face with bells on his cap and that kind of things it's kind of harlequin colors like red and yellow i think and he gets into all sorts of trouble he also has a wife called judy who has a baby and he usually beats Judy that's the site of comedy believe it or not which is why you don't see it very often anymore so yeah and then he gets beaten up by the crocodile and the policeman and Judy hits him back with a frying pan and it's just that kind of it's very violent domestic abuse comedy (laughs) like I guess (laughs) which you put your children in front of and make them watch and get them to interact with. Um, And the puppeteer speaks through something called a swazzle, which is a little mouthpiece that you put in your mouth. And it kind of sounds like you're talking through a harmonica or a kazoo. It gives that voice, your voice, a really high pitched tinny quality. There's an example on Wikipedia. I think if you listen, if you just Google swazzle, they've got somebody saying, Mr. Punch's catchphrase is that's the way to do it. 
which is already the stuff of nightmares, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> horrible puppet. It's already terrifying without any other story. Like, when the f- first time I've heard of it, I was like, wait, what is this? Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Then, and then yeah. there was your story. So it's like, ah, of course. <laughs> of course it can be confoundedly more terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so my story in um, Folklore of Pagwan Sea, which is 99p ebook, is... You know, uh, it's a poem, a free verse poem that I've said was published anonymously in the Pagamon Sea Community Newsletter in in 1984, whenever it was. And uh, (laughs) there is a Punch and Judy shop in Hangman on Sea, uh, sorry, in Hangman's Walk, which is Pagamon Sea. And Hangman's Walk is the oldest part of the town. It's called Hangman's Walk because that's the route that you would take to the gallows. And there's a little plaque now on the floor, a little brass plaque, say, commemorating where the gallows were. So that's where um, smugglers were hanged and it's where witches were hanged, because in England you didn't burn witches, you hanged them. Okay. And the houses were medieval in date, but now oldest houses are Tudor in date. So they're a bunch of very, very old kind of black and white timber buildings that are huddled together against the sea right on the edge of the town. And they are shops, but you don't know that unless you know what they're selling. So there's no names above the doors. There's no shop names. You just have to know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, then you shouldn't be there. It's that sort of a street, right? But one of these shops is obviously a shop, and it is the Punch and Judy shop. And it's just covered in Punch and Judy puppets, glove puppets, marionettes all over the windows. But there are also horseshoes above the door. What are they for? We don't know. And you go in and there are strings hanging above the, you know, like. um, And so the urban legend is that if you go at three o'clock in the morning to Hangman's, which you shouldn't do anyway. But um, (laughs) (laughs) if you do, you might hear uh, a Punch and Judy show being performed. And if you go into the shop and sit down and watch the Punch and Judy show through some some reason, obviously all the tales vary at different, you know, um, at this point, but you will end up as a puppet. That's the story. So that's, yeah, that's the poem. And yeah, so I, I kind of really liked that as a very, very creepy seaside urban legend that I thought would fit. So I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'm going to do Hangman's Walk as a bonus episode in in February. So you get to hear that poem again. Um, if you haven't heard it already, you get to hear it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you a little bit more about the meteorite strike as well that I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, so that's one of the bonus episodes of the podcast. Yeah, that's, oh, I just, I, I love Pagamon Sea. I would never go there given a chance. Absolutely not. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll go to Fairwood, but no, I've never entered the town proper. Like, it's terrifying, but it's just so amazing to read. And like, oh my. And, and you know, like, I, I'm not that horror person, but something in The Crows actually is like, it's that borderline point, but it works. It's just the fun of it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not kind of chilling. I don't think it's it's not jump scare horror. And I for a long time I didn't I didn't consider it to be horror. 
Um, I didn't think that what I write is horror mm -hmm. until I, <laughs> and everyone's like, oh no, but it is horror. And I'm like, oh, is it really, is it just, is it just a bit like paranormal, isn't it? You know, it's more goth, it's a bit gothic, but, and then I did a list of content warnings and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, <I'm on."> <laughs> <laughs> it descends, it's horror in the way, yeah, in the way that House of a Thousand Corpses is horror. Right. It's not as gory as that, but it's it's a lot of character dynamics, which is where I think people get very disturbed by its character backstory and what they do and that kind of thing and how they interact with the world <laughs> and each other. <laughs> and then there is a bit of gore and there is a bit of there's some violence and there's that that sort of. But it's all, you know, in the name of. The fact that I've created this eldritch family of they're they're my Lovecraft parody, basically. They're, which I I just I just wanted. I mean, you know, you can't have a town like that and not have some tentacles in there somewhere. Yeah. But you know, wouldn't it be funny though? <laughs> <laughs> this is my sense of humor. If the family that are the eldritch horrors and the family that that could potentially end the world by bringing through you know creatures from the dark beyond or the outside you know what if they just were the wrong family to do that <laughs> like what if they were not academics or they weren't interested in the workings of the universe what if they were just basically historically working class petty criminals who used their newfound powers to be better at petty crime? And what if one of their main things was social status? So that means they can't end the world because, first of all, they've only just finished the barn conversion. Right. <laughs> Secondly, they've entered the flower show and they yeah. always win the show. So that's really important. Thirdly, our Ruby's getting married on Tuesday. So you can't end the world. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so so <laughs> no one wants to end the world. That's ridiculous. But they do eat people though. Yeah. And they do have these horrendous mutations like, you know, gelatinous ooze and tentacles that come out the back of your head and like uh, uh, what's cousin Layla got? Oh, she's got the 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 prehensile tongue that comes out of her navel, and like you know, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, all of this kind of stuff. So that's like the body horror element. But they've all got like you know, some of them are Instagram influencers, and some of them have got like their own cosmetic shops, and like they, you know, they 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 just aren't interested in being eldritch horrors, <laughs> but they live in a very, you know, th but they do eat people though. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that, and, and they do the cult kind of chanting, and they do the rituals, and some of them think the rituals are really boring, <laughs> and like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we're doing this again. Oh, fair enough. Like, you know, but I want to watch the Twitch stream at seven. Is this going to be over? Like, <laughs> you know, and I just that was that that to me is just like the perfect family. And they all hate each other and they're all very toxic and they all like don't get on. And so that was my, oh, this is actually maybe horror.
but it's horrifying because of them <laughs> it's yeah. not like a yeah <laughs> <laughs> and ricky is very much one of them <laughs> we love ricky here yeah yeah that's disturbing as well <laughs> oh well what can we do That was an interesting one. I wasn't expecting like that 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 kind of response. <laughs> I did make him sympathetic, or I tried to make him some some sort of sympathetic. Uh, I gave him a backstory that I think was fairly, and the fact that his mum wanted a girl, and <laughs> just like <laughs> constantly reminded that he wasn't supposed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that is horror. That is the sight of horror, or one of the sights of horror. But I genuinely just thought I was writing a just a just a quirky paranormal novel. <laughs> <laughs> just got a lot of its own. Yeah. Yeah, but I see what you mean. Like there, there are definitely times where it's like, oh, it's strange, it's kind of creepy, there's a lot of atmosphere. But uh yeah, uh Ricky's family is is very much on the more horrific end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can't really say too much about them without spoiling, you know, the crows for obvious reasons. Although one of the one of the content warnings is threatened lobotomy by parasites, and I think that just kind of sums it up for them. <laughs> well, you, right. you, now you know exactly the type of people who are, who are involved with the yeah, yeah, exactly. By parasites. <laughs> and this is why I think House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects are quite a good, uh, quite a good comparison. <laughs> Even though I don't go that far, I don't think with the gore and the, but um, yeah, it's that kind of dynamic. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just fun, really. <laughs> it is. Like it's just it's and that's one of those things that I find really interesting about this horror because even as like okay it's literature it's not jump scares in writing are a lot more difficult to do and work very differently but what you do there is this atmospheric horror because okay we we don't know the entirety of Pagamon Sea we we see it especially from Carrie who's just arrived and is settling in it's like oh was she stalking someone I was like. Oh, don't go to Hangman's Walk. D just don't. Don't go to Hangman's Walk. And, and we don't go to Hangman's Walk. But yeah, we don't. We, we don't. Sensibly. Sensibly, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know what, there's, there's more going on. <laughs> there's yeah. worse than Hangman's Walk. But we, yeah. we definitely were like, oh, okay. So it's this kind of thing. Okay. And there are plenty of other terrifying creepy things going on and like just as we learn and meet more of Ricky's family and just the the neighbors meeting the neighbors that's uh <laughs> that's a great time but <laughs> and it works because you, you it's not and, and that's one of the things that I found really interesting about the horror because what is actually being the horrific it's like it, oh, the, the the vampires there. We have the nightclubs. You have the werewolves being on them, and like, okay, we don't know all this, but as we get to know and hear things, it's like the inherent monstrosity inverted commas. It's not like, oh, they're thing. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, even it's Ricky's true. like, yeah, he's a cannibal, but you know, sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, it's not the monstrosity that makes the monsters. That's the that's my whole thing. I think so. 
yeah, the other thing with Ricky, I think, is that I was playing on, there's a, there's a subgenre called hoodie horror, hmm. which is very classist. And it's very like, so Eden Lake is a good film as an example. So Eden Lake is the story of a middle-class couple goes to a lake in the Lake District up in the sort of North England or North, the Lake District is in Cumbria. Those mm-hmm. who don't know, it's a lovely picturesque place. And they are terrorised by a group of youths wearing hoodies with a Rottweiler. That's the film, right? That's the whole film. And the director said that, you know, he wasn't demonising a particular class. But at the same time, if it was a bunch of boys in blazers from a public school, it wouldn't be as scary. I beg to differ there, actually, because I think if you had a lot of very entitled lads with daddy's money, terrorizing a couple in a in a lake cabin that would be just as scary yes actually it would so there's a that's an interesting perception there and ricky does wear a hoodie and a tracksuit and has tattoos all up his arms he's also very much not feral in that way that you expect him to be because he's an autodidact he didn't go to school so he it's kind of hinted in the, the that he broke into the library and he taught himself how to, well, he, he learned from a librarian how to read. And then he just reads, he reads voraciously and he taught himself Latin and he taught himself Old English and he speaks to himself in fluent Old English. And he drops in things to conversation like, oh, I read this like casually not showing off he's just he just knows these words he just knows and you can have a really intelligent conversation with him which is not the kind of character that you find in hoodie horror or that you find in um so that was really important that part of his character was really important for me anyway like the fact that actually you know what if he hadn't been so messed up by his own family and the family dynamics he might actually be a really nice lad yeah yeah not the kind of lad that you would necessarily want to hang around with potentially <laughs> but because he is yeah he, he's also a bit of an asshole but like you just think no he could if he'd gone you know he could have done a lot with his life <laughs> actually yeah. <laughs> but he's and but the issue isn't that he's this kind of feral underclass the issue is that he's been systematically messed up by his family who are all aspiring middle class actually like his grandmother who is has this lovely clean beautiful cottage and runs things and is part of all these societies and is a really important figure in the town and everyone listens to her and she has that kind of power over people you know and Wes who's very upper middle class and that his cousin that you you meet and kind of just dismisses Ricky very much as somebody you use yeah and and so I wanted that dynamic to be at the forefront of it rather than the monstrosity of it because the monstrosity mm-hmm. is in what they do to each other and not the fact that they have like tongues coming out their navels and stuff because that's just by the by yeah. <laughs> right that can happen to anyone in Pagan <laughs> so- at least yeah so so that's the and it's the way that they use their monstrosity against people that makes them monsters 
Whereas Ricky actually never really does, I think, use his uh, particular mutation in that way because he knows he he doesn't need to. Yeah. It's just it's just something he it's it's more an indicative of um, his emotional state, and he can like his his tendrils have mouths on them, and he can like inject you with some sort of anaesthetic that dribbles out of them, and like he sucks your spinal fluids dry with them and stuff, and that's fine. But um, <laughs> you don't actually see him do that because most of the time he can just um, he could just punch you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Simpler. Like, Much simpler. Yeah. And he's just not flashy in that way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just the kind of, it's that sort of thing about monstrosity for me. It's the, well, yeah, you can be a monster or you could be a whatever, but that doesn't make you monstrous. Yeah, exactly. Like so, the, the, these horrific familial relationships are much more terrifying than like, oh, the, they're just up to 11 because they can do a, a lot more horror with them. But, you know, they're, they're bad in themselves. And it's not because, oh, because they have these mutations. No, they, they just use them really, really badly. Yeah, it's basically like, that was my thing, was if you took all the mutations away, you would have a really awful, murderous, horrible family who are still equally as toxic. Yeah. And so again, that's yeah. So so you, yeah, that that kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre dynamic, or or House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Reject kind of Firefly family, but middle class and in in England, <laughs> <laughs> and living in like really nice houses and owning their own businesses, and being the people that you come across in your hairdresser, or in the shop, or in the cafe, or you know, in your local club, right? These are people that blend in really well to their environment. And you could put them anywhere and they would fit in with other people because that's what they're like. And it's almost like ripping the, you know, they do in actuality what some people only do by the kind of, it's it's kind of you know uh, some people eviscerate people in gossip and that mm-hmm. sort of thing these people will gossip about you and ruin your life but they will also literally eviscerate you yes right but like what's worse you know and it's it's sort of they yeah that's what i that's what i like about it is that i'm kind of making I don't know. I, I just like to make them people that you might have met or and you think actually, you know, I could I could well believe that this person has like body parts in their basement, <laughs> but goes to bingo on a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> right. So and participates in the flower show and Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, likes to control people with whatever put, they put in the gingerbread that they sell at bake sales. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah naturally so yeah so that kind of it's all that kind of stuff which i find is that sort of gothicization of social dynamics and wanting to be a part of society in a very particular way definitely yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. But it really, the horrific there, it, it's, it, it operates in various different ways, and it is, it is just a fun read. It's just, it's really good. <laughs> like, I, I have, I praise the crows <laughs> here and elsewhere and all the time because it was just like, it was so good. It was so much fun. It was like, <laughs> what can I say? I, I, I will not stop praising this. <laughs> oh. I think people are going to have like uh, a very <laughs> overly uh, like uh, like uh, incre- uh, overinflated expectations of it. <laughs> possibly, possibly, but you know, uh, a, d- a dear recommendation. It's it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's all right. <laughs> no, I, I I think it's one of my favourite things that I've written. But then I I get into um, the family much more in Thirteenth than I get into the much more in Eldritch Girls. Just want to have fun which I'm co-writing with Nita Pan and that Eldritch Girls Just Want to Have Fun is set early 2016 in Brighton. And there is a scene where we go to Pagmon Sea just for a day out, you know, because that's Sasha Shaw's family and the Shaws are part of the same family as the Porters. So um, they're all cousins and stuff. So, so you get like that kind of thing and it's, um, what you get to explore the dynamics of the family more and see what those like I said you know what what do they do for a living and how do they you know and Sasha is a burlesque dancer who stars in snuff films and kills people on camera as part of her show and uh, yeah so that's like a splatterpunk rom-com I guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah love the description yeah so it's about her falling in love with um, an erratic chaotic hitman from Chicago who's bi and has an enemy lover triangle thing going on with Sasha and a guy who works for the gangster that he works for anyway yeah so it's it's this it's it's like Guy Ritchie and Quentin Tarantino wrote a romance I guess um like it's kind of that there's there's gangsters and drugs and snuff film rackets and eldritch mutations and a dinner scene <laughs> where he goes to meet the parents and <laughs> like yeah so um there's lots of so yeah very much splatterpunk rom-com kind of thing and that's a lot of fun to write so that's very different vibe to the crows yes so and 13th does more with the the, with the weird fiction and the lovecraft parodies and i explicitly parody dagon by lovecraft and I think you'll see a lot of other stuff in there as well, like weird fiction references, like Frank Belknap Long and the Hands of Tinderloss is another one that I kind of play with. Whereas in The Crows, I was all about the subversion and things of gothic tropes. And I named all the chapters after gothic tropes and tried to play with those a bit more. Um, so, yeah, so I'm doing a lot of stuff with the the setting gothic tropes will still be my one true love but it's uh yeah it's just fun to play with genre like that yeah i've had a teensy look at eldritch girls just want to have fun and it is oh boy (laughs) 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 very different vibes yeah Yeah. the crows has this more gothic it's like the secrets and the intrigue it starts lulling you in slowly and then you start getting to the to the horrific yeah. monsters and what that all means. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, the other right. ones. Uh, <laughs> Eldritch Girls are just straight in there. 
no preamble necessary. No, no, this is what it is. Just blood all over the walls. Um, 13th is kind of uh, opens with a, a kind of a gory sequence as well. And then we get into the, oh, oh, right. This kid's father is a serial killer. And, um, and it kind of goes from there. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's Katie's story. Katie and Wes's father, who's this. So they're Ricky Porter's cousins. And you get to see what that side of the family think of Ricky's side of the family, which is an interesting one. So I've got a lot of recurring jokes as well, like <laughs> like they know all of the horrific stuff that Ricky's parents get up to. And Ricky keeps going, well, yeah, but your mum owes my mum 50 quid. So, you know, from six Christmases ago. So I don't know what you're talking. And this this 50 quid just keeps being brought up as like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, well, oh, 50 quid. So. <laughs> Um, and that just made me laugh like <laughs> just uh, the, I, I like kind of playing with stuff like that so yeah <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I think we've we've been through about an hour now and a bit and we've gone through most of what we we have thought out about talking about and the, I, I really the world building I, again like just the world building is so good and the whole, <laughs> the way that it is it's really interestingly done but yeah, anything else you, you wanted to mention or that we ended up leaving out? I think the other site of horror that we didn't talk about was the horror of house ownership. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that kind of like the unattainable dream of, you know, ending up with this, like, what do you do when you get your dream house? And that kind of, and that, that I guess, like, again, just plays into the class element of it that I was interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what if a working class slash, you know, lower middle class person buys a house that is for the elite. And you get that kind of that clash of space and the idea that this is not a space that you should belong in. And you inherit all of the horror of that space and the weight of the history of that space. But you may not be equipped to deal with it because... I don't think anyone is really, but like, you know, do you stand a better chance of dealing with it if you are part of the class that was oppressed within that space or the class that belonged to that space, but as servants or to serve that space? And what happens within that when you subvert that and suddenly the servant becomes the, the owner? And how does that work out? And is it inevitable? Because as I said at the start, in the uh, that's in the blurb that Carrie has thirty three days to live from from, you know, the start of the book. So you enter in the middle of a countdown, basically, and Ricky has known her death date since January, and it is now March, April, and so from this point that he's kind of like, yep, that's it, the builders are going, and we're where are we? We're thirty three days to go. How is she going to die? Let's find out. So that's kind of this inevitability of fate. But it's is it inevitable that she's going to die because of the house? Is it inevitable that she's going to die because of something else? Is it, you know, what what makes it an inevitable fate that she can't escape? And is so I, I kind of play with that, those questions a lot. 
and those sorts of omens and things like that that Ricky's very good at reading yeah so is it that you enter a space that's not designed for you and you subvert it and that means you're doomed to die or that somebody else thinks that you should die because of that or is it because of something else entirely and can that be subverted in some way can it be changed is there a loophole so that's the whole kind of that's the whole kind of the the conflict of the plot actually I guess um insofar as there is a plot it's really just a snapshot of the 33 days left of somebody's life which is why I think people don't know what to do with it or like how to categorize it or how to give it a genre because it literally is I've, I've written 33 days of someone's life and gone this is it's so in that way I guess it's more kind of what whatever literary fiction is right it doesn't have <laughs> it's driven it doesn't really have a plot apart from a central mystery and unraveling like the atmosphere and the secrets and she's not very good at unraveling the mystery actually <laughs> but that's not the point um because she's not a detective she works in a shop like give her a break so you know you've got all of this tension around a lot of different things and it was just me playing with you know what what if this what if this random woman who doesn't know that she's got 33 days left to live is just out there living her life for 33 days and all this shit keeps happening to her (laughs) (laughs) and you know how do we resolve that and what happens with that kind of conflict and and when she finds out if she finds out like you know what happens so yeah so that's the story (laughs) that's the main story (laughs) yeah yeah i on what you were going about like the house ownership it's because it's it's inheriting a particular space with its own particular history and a history in that place like how does fairwood connect to its neighbors to pagamon sea to the people all around yeah so it's an inheritance of a place of its history its history of relations and its current yes. relations yeah and she is very much an outsider she has no idea and so it's not just a class thing it's also uh you know she's coming from london she's born and bred in in um in London, various London boroughs. She's lived there all her life. She moved away for uni briefly, but that's kind of it. But like, you know, and, and she she's never been to this town before. And she doesn't understand what she's what she's treading on. And everybody else does. And they're all trying to tell her. That's the thing. There's no, there's no miscommunication in the crows. Everybody tells her what she needs to know. She just doesn't have the tools to interpret that. Yeah. And she doesn't know what that means. So everyone's telling her to avoid certain places and certain people. Everyone tells her what not to do. But she doesn't know why, because she doesn't have all of the information that they assume. If you were telling somebody from that town, they would be able to fill in the gaps themselves. But Carrie can't do that. So it's, yeah, it's it's that kind of situation. She's got all the information she needs. She just doesn't know how to, to go about putting that together. Exactly. Which I thought was, yeah, much more interesting than the, you know, if only she talked to this character who could have told her stuff. <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of that, but there's, you know, there's a reason you don't tell Ricky Porter shit. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, and 
and sometimes you just forget to mention things like details get forgotten about and he's like oh oh what's this oh I could help you with that but the way he helps is not particularly helpful (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so you get a lot of that going on as well there we are (laughs) and and, and the details of that you're gonna have to listen and or read both yeah we, we we recommend yeah if you do want to read ahead you can just buy the novel so there won't be transcripts of the serial because obviously the transcript is the book. So just buy the book. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I will be doing some transcripts of the author interviews and the, the bonus episodes. But yeah, if you do want to read ahead, get cosy, buy the book. I won't be doing the accents. You'll be all delighted to know. So you'll just have to cope with my voice as it is. Yeah. But that's better than doing them badly, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fair choice. A fair choice. So uh, where can people find you and more of your work? So, yep. So if you go to cmrosens.com, that's my website. Um, I've got links to all of my social media on there and everything you need to know. Um, You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at cmrosens, also on Pinterest at cmrosens and instagram is cm.rosens so i'm all over social media and yeah cmrosens.com nice and easy um that's my website with all of the info on there for you if you search for the crows cmrosens you'll find it on amazon or um, barnes and noble smashwords um kobo all of the usual places. The paperback is only available from Amazon, but the ebook is available from all online ebook retailers. Uh, and it's illustrated by Tom Brown. I should mention that. Um, even the ebook is illustrated. So the ebook has three illustrations uh, by Tom Brown, who is a graphic uh, novelist, uh, an artist who has co created the Hopeless Main graphic novels. And the paperback has five. Uh, illustrations so two extra ones in the paperback oh yeah yeah thank you thank you so much from us you can find us on on twitter at left page pod and we have uh, our various things our poetry clubs our reading corners which are things i basically other books or stories or even academic work that wouldn't make it to an episode anytime soon or at all that i like always stop and think about this write about it a bit various interesting stuff you can check and if you can support us on there at patreon.com forward slash left page and yeah i think i think that's it from our our links as well but uh this was an excellent conversation like just just fun just fun to talk more about the pros and we we definitely recommend giving giving it a checking it out giving it a listen again it'll be coming out early next week so we we do hope you you enjoy it. And you find it fun. It has been a, a great pleasure. It's been a lot of fun having you here as well. Yeah, it was lovely to be on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. So thank you so much for listening. And until the next one. Bye.